son. Our hopes and dreams travel with you. You'll be an outcast. I'll kill him. How? You'll be a god to them. dreamed of becoming something other than what society had intended? What if a child aspired to something greater? My son was in the bus. He saw what Clark did. You're the answer, son. You're the answer to are we alone in the universe. Can I just... Pretending I'm your son? You are my son. And I have to believe that you were sent here for a reason. And even if it takes the rest of your life, you owe it to yourself to find out what that reason is. How do you find someone who has spent a lifetime covering his tracks? For some, he was a guardian angel. For others, a ghost who never quite fit in. You will give the people of Earth an ideal to strive towards. They will race behind you. They will stumble. They will fall. But in time, they will join you in the sun. In time, you will help them accomplish wonders. Son is safe. I will find him. My father believed if the world found out who I really was, it'd reject me. He was convinced that the world wasn't ready. What do you think? What's the S stand for? It's not an S. On my world, it means hope. Well, here it is. And ask, how about... Excuse me. Welcome to Superman Forever Radio, episode 67. I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. This time around, more of Superman Birthright and the return of a familiar face in our continuing coverage of Superman the Animated Series. But first, we had a new Man of Steel trailer drop this week. The week of the 75th anniversary on April 18th, and all I can say is awesome. The more I see... It just looks better and better. And I may walk out of the movie 
thinking it's horrible. I don't know. I won't know until the credits roll. But I'm more and more encouraged than ever and more and more excited. And the truth is, I don't have anything greatly constructive to share about it. I'm not going to analyze the trailer. I put it at the front of the episode because I definitely wanted you to be made aware of it. But it's actually been an interesting week since I last dropped the last episode. Because we had a countdown at uh, manasteel.com. It was static. And it would slowly get clearer and clearer until we saw the Zod symbol. And then we had a message from Zod, which initially disappointed me. But now I really, really digged what they did. And I kind of blame myself for getting my... My hope's up on an assumption that it would be a trailer, but hey, the trailer was totally worth waiting for. And I just, I cannot believe that the movie is less than two months away. And there's part of me that's sad about that because the development of this movie, since its inception, it's been a big part of this show since it began. And it'll be weird to finally sit down and do the episode after seeing it and finally be able to really close that chapter and talk about the movie having seen it. But that's a couple months away, and for now, we have Birthright to talk about. But we have one other thing from this week. Um, I received an email, and sadly it was not for me. My email inbox has been sadly lacking on that front. But it appears that I am the steward of Darkseid's podcasting affairs now, because the email was for him, and it was from none other than Dr. Doom, writing to Darkseid from across the pond. And I'm just going to read the email as it came to me. It is entitled, Doom Returns, and Doom writes, Darkseid, Doom did not appreciate your most recent episode of your Sequest podcast, as Doom did not feel it really contained enough Sequest. Doom feels your minions should be exterminated for incorrectly stating that Stacey Hayduke left after Season 2, when Doom knows full well the pain her departure caused Doom after Season 1. Doom is fully aware Darkseid made this error, but the minion is always killed. Doom will do it for you, should you wish. And only Doom would point out that this episode, Chains of Command, was directed by former Happy Days actor Anson Williams. Only Doom would dare. Doom did not watch Happy Days. Doom could not get past the title. As your Sequest podcast is the only external media presentation that is allowed airtime on Radio Free Latveria, Latveria's only networked radio station, Doom feels it behooves Doom to point out when you are weak. Weakness will get you killed. Probably by Doom. Your show has a prime time slot in between the weekly Doom news. Unlike other propaganda-laden channels, this is a show about Doom news, such as how Doom manages to get such a lovely garden in the winter. And popular Latvian soap opera, The Doombots. It alternates its time slot with Murder Doom wrote, Doom's own show about murder she wrote. Doom feels that only Jessica Fletcher understands Doom, and Doom would vote her president if Doom believed in A. Democracy, and B. Free elections. Doom must go. Doom needs to kill some superheroes and tend to Doom's garden. And you owe Doom a rematch at Twister. Hail Doom. Um, I'm not going to advocate taking shots, but I'm just saying if you were to make a drinking game over how many times he used the word Doom, you probably have cirrhosis. And of course, when I forwarded the message to Darkseid, thinking that would be the end of it, he sent me an audio clip to be used on air, so I hope Doom listens to this show. I'm going to play it, simply for fear of Omega Beams, but I'm not going to comment any further because I don't want to propagate villain-on-villain violence or what have you. So, here is Darkseid's response. Dearest Victor, I have yet to see the proper royalties from my program being on the air in your little country. Sorry, there wasn't more Sequest, but ruling and subjugating an entire planet takes a lot of time out of my day. 
I'm sure you understand, at least on your tiny scale. However, I have enjoyed the misadventures of Miss Jessica Fletcher on many an occasion, and enjoy her murderous ways. But, your tips on growing proper azaleas don't seem to work for me. Mine wilt and die after only a few days. Anyhow, as to Stacey Hayduke, apparently you didn't get the unedited second season, as shown here. Perhaps we can discuss a syndication package. But, to appease you, I offer you this. Clyde. Yes, boss? This is for your insolence. And that is that. Good luck running your tiny country, Baker Von Doom, and please, get back with me on the Azaleas. Sincerely, Darkseid, ruler of Apocalypse, which is a planet, and therefore bigger than a country. And there you have it. The only thing missing is an epic rap battle and a mic drop. And I am ready to get into our books, because this time, we're looking at Birthright issues 3 through 6, bringing us up to the halfway point of the story. And of course, another episode of Superman the Animated Series. So with that, I'm ready to jump directly into Birthright, beginning with issue 3. Superman Birthright number 3 went on sale September 3rd of 2003, cover dated November of that same year. Featuring a cover by Lionel Francis Yu and Gary Allen Gilliland, showing Clark in the foreground, wearing the Superman costume, the familiar glasses, and a suit jacket half on. Another Clark in, super, in a Superman t-shirt, Mon Pa Kent, and a full-on Superman in the very background, flying high. The story was entitled A Legacy Reborn, written by Mark Wade, penciled by Lionel Francis Yu, inked by Gary Allen Guilin, lettered by Richard Starkings, with colorist Dave McCaig. And we begin pretty much picking up right where we left off, with Clark and Martha gathering leather straps and other materials to put together a costume as Jonathan watches silently. In fact, as Martha and Clark begin work on what will be Superman's familiar costume, Jonathan lurks silent and watching all the while. And then Jonathan makes his way through the Kent house, up to Clark's room, where he sees a chart showing Clark's height from age 2 to age 3, and a hole in the ceiling from age 4. He also looks over some old family pictures on the wall, including one showing a farmer and a small baby. Jonathan reminds Clark that the center beam on the barn needs work, and the tractor is still broken, which Clark says he'll get to momentarily. But Martha and Clark look at the designs on the tablet's holograms and lose track of time, and Clark realizes that his dad has already fixed the tractor. Clark tries to apologize, but Jonathan drops a snarky comment about Clark play-acting in his little costume, and Clark knows something is brewing in his dad's mind. Later that night, Martha talks to Jonathan about his attitude, telling Jonathan that he was always good at keeping Clark's feet on the ground, and reminding his son that despite his powers, he is like the rest of them, to which Jonathan tells Martha that, well, Clark isn't like them. And out in the field, beneath the night sky, Clark hears his father's words, and is stunned. The following day, Clark tries to talk to his father, and offers to help repair some fence posts, but his father coldly dismisses Clark, telling him he'll take care of it. And alone in the barn, Jonathan takes a sledgehammer to the Starcraft, venting his anger over and over again, but... That causes the weak center beam to finally break, and the barn begins to come down on Jonathan's head. But Clark sweeps in and flies his father out of danger and into the bright blue sky. 
Clark demands to know what Jonathan's problem is, and it turns out that Jonathan feels that the bond between the father and son has deteriorated since Clark has been away. Jonathan feels like he has failed because Clark came back and didn't want the Kent name anymore, and he misses his son. But Clark explains that he is like Jonathan, a man who left home at 18 to find his own place in the world and decide who he was for himself and not what others wanted them to be. And Jonathan was the inspiration for that. And in front of the picture from earlier, which we learn was of Jonathan as a baby and his father, the two finally understand each other. So, work begins on creating a Clark Kent for day-to-day -day life, and the flying alien alter-ego made more complicated by Clark's dislike of masks. But, by using slightly oversized dress clothes, different body language, some acting, they make some progress. But something is still missing, and Martha puts Jonathan's glasses on Clark, diffusing those vibrant blue eyes, and suddenly it works. With that, and acting skills, a mild-mannered Clark Kent prepares to leave, and his parents ask where he is going. Holding up a bus ticket for Metropolis, Clark asks, where else is there? And the issue closes just before a new chapter in Clark's life begins. And that brings us to the notes on this issue. I thought that would get a, a bigger reaction, actually. But, starting with the cover, it's really good, it's iconic, it doesn't make a lot of sense, though. I like Clark at the forefront, the half in, half out. I like the Kents in the background. But we get this extra Clark, which is cool-looking, and then the traditional Superman in the background as well. It looks a bit too heavy. And then there's this maroon backdrop. It just didn't work as an overall composition because it looks like a bunch of sketchbook stuff. And my notes on the issue proper begin with page 3 where Jonathan goes to Clark's room. It's a new, different way to show the progression of Clark from infant to man. And we get a lot of insight on Clark's childhood from what we see here. We have a tape player laying on the bed. Not a CD player or iPod which reminds us that uh, we have a loose time frame of the 80s, maybe the late 70s. And I kind of thought this through, and since this was to be occurring roughly 2003 or 2004, which is 25 years after Clark arrived, we can place the rocket crash around 1978 or 1979. We also have hanging models of an X-Wing fighter and TIE fighter from Star Wars, which is in line with that time frame as well as a Bruce Lee poster. It syncs up pretty well. We have the hidden label on the father and son picture from page 4, which comes full circle showing us the generational um, progression of the Kents. It also shows us the heart of Jonathan and loosely parallels Jor-El's situation as he sees his son leaving him on an emotional as well as a physical level. He's grasping onto the familiar and the memories of who his son was as a child. Afraid for Clark forgetting his history, just like Jor-El was. For characters who are radically different in the realm of emotion, Jor-El and Jonathan are actually intertwined. Now I'm going to momentarily jump ahead to page 13 because I want to bring it into this thought process. This is the biggest part of my thought process for this episode. And we jump to 13 when Jonathan goes at the ship with a sledgehammer. It never occurred to me what an emotional device the ship is. In a, in a literal sense. Because for both Jor-El and Jonathan, it represents their son leaving them. For me, it's been a symbol of life, and that symbol of that second chance and greater destiny, but for Jarrell facing death and shooting his son into the unknown, the ship was a symbol of death for him, maybe for his son, and in a horrible way. For Jonathan, it's that side of Clark that he can never really understand. A side that's taking him away to Metropolis, to his heroic destiny, and from Jonathan's point of view, from his Kent name. 
It's just very, very powerful. Now, speaking of Clark's Kryptonian side, it's odd looking at the Kryptonians, and I'm just stopping by here, I'm going to come back to that thought process, but it's odd to look at the Kryptonians because their outfits are very layered with multiple textures and accessories. And then we see Superman's costume. It's very streamlined. It's very sleek, very few layers. I get that the cape and tights come from this as a starting point, but that's like the base of it. I'm not sure where the look got slimmed down. The only thing I can think of logistically, and it makes sense, is the costume was made uh, leaning more towards accounting for flying. And I know that's, uh, like I said, that's an odd note while we're here. But I want to get back to my thought process as I look at page 10, where Martha mentions that keeping Clark's secret was the hardest thing she ever had to do. I kind of have to wonder, just for food for thought, playing devil's advocate, did the Kents do the right thing? Because what if keeping the single most significant discovery in human history a secret did humanity a disservice? Think about the technology and the history. What if scientists could find a Rosetta Stone and decipher that language and advance Earth forward to complete peace and utopia? And I know that sounds like Lex Luthor, it's a scary concept, but it's something I like to play with every now and then when looking at something like this. Definitely makes me think. And let me get back to my main theme finally. Um, now that I have those few random thoughts out of the way, this issue was very much about parents and generations and changing and growing up. We have one relationship with our parents as a child. And then when we're adults, we see them completely differently. And likewise, thanks to the changes in a person growing into an adult, we become different people. And this issue hit that theme running. Because we have Jonathan watching Clark grow toward a new mysterious destiny, and he just doesn't know how to approach it. As Martha tells him, Jonathan was always good at keeping Clark's feet on the ground, but now, as an adult in his own right, he isn't the kid Jonathan was accustomed to. He's been gone for seven years. A lot happens in seven years. I've been married for seven years. Uh, wonderful years, but it's a substantial length of time, and people change over substantial amounts of time. That's all there is to it. And then there's a comment that seems like Jonathan is seeing Clark like the others were afraid of him. Um, which Clark overhears in the field. It hits home. I mean, it really does. And we see Clark growing in Smallville, just not in the way we're used to. It's familiar yet unexpected. So we get this framing of the story. We get this contention, which reminded me a little bit of Superman for All Seasons. But the creation of the alter ego really did it for me. Um... The alter ego version of Clark hits created and it hits on all of the logic flaws that fans have had with the Superman-Clark-Kent dichotomy. The physicality is shown clearly in the art. And Martha points out that Clark will be working in a place filled with people constantly looking for the truth. Is this the greatest idea in the world? By acknowledging that, we accept it as readers. Because Clark knows what he's walking into and is prepared we can kind of assume and put in the blanks, okay, we're aware of this. It's out of the way. It's on the table. <laughs> that little awkward topic is gone. Mark Wade takes all the fan arguments, acknowledges them, and gives us a transition to the alter ego that shuts down the haters. And the biggest key? Acting, as John Lovitz would say. It, it, we really get a Smallville segment that does propel us towards our destination, which is Metropolis, which is where Superman Birthright number 4 picks up. Birthright number four dropped on October 21st, 2003, with a December 2003 cover date. We have a cover and story by the exact same creative team, 
The cover depicts Lois Lane plummeting towards the reader from a tall building with a helicopter pursuing her guns blazing. You have my attention and not just because Lois has a skirt that's being blown up, but that definitely helps. The story is simply entitled Birthright Part 4 and it opens with Clark arriving in the big apricot Metropolis, a city patrolled by drone helicopters with street merchants selling gas masks. Clark arrives at his job interview at the Daily Planet and sees the paper's publisher, Quentin Galloway, horrifically berating a young photographer named Jimmy Olsen. This angers Clark to the point of crushing a stapler, but a fearless female reporter steps in and stands up to Galloway, defending Jimmy. Galloway backs off and Clark is suddenly in love with Miss Lois Lane. Clark proceeds to his job interview with editor Perry White, who doesn't see the mumbling and mild-mannered Clark Kent as the same person could have ever written the news pieces Perry has read from him. And as Clark is about to really let his guard down and step up with confidence, one of the drone copters begins to fire its machine guns on Perry's office. Clark is able to save Perry and slips through the bullpen unseen in the confusion and, knowing what he must do, he tears open his dress shirt and beneath is a blue costume with the red shield symbol. Lois, being, well, Lois Lane, and an army brat, drags Jimmy to the roof where she fires up a news helicopter and pilots it over the city to get the scoop. They see another drone firing on a Chinese restaurant, but don't notice another drone setting its sights on their helicopter. And the machine guns tear into the planet's helicopter, sending it spinning towards the ground. Jimmy topples out of the craft and is making a speedy descent towards the streets below to his certain death, but this is when something changes. This is when everything changes. The helicopter stops, mid-air, and something grabs Jimmy's ankle, saving him from a horrific impact with the pavement. And that something is a man, wearing a blue bodysuit with a familiar red S and red cape. And that man can fly. Jimmy and Lois are lowered to the ground, and Clark is afraid Lois will fear him, but she doesn't. Instead, she reminds him that there is still danger. And Clark flies back into action, smashing the drone copters left and right, but something distracts him, only for a moment. With his telescopic vision, he sees a bald businessman watching the action from afar. And Clark realizes that this is Lex Luthor, but this momentary distraction costs him, because the drones are able to shoot him into a building, leaving only a gaping hole and nothing moving inside. And the issue ends with that cliffhanger. But we still have notes to go through, and starting with page one, where we get a full page splash of Metropolis covered in smog, and while I don't dig the grimy look, I like a clean, pristine metropolis, a beacon of hope, or what have you. I do like seeing the different architecture they've thrown, they've thrown in here. It's a landscape cobbled together from all kinds of cities, like the Arch from St. Louis. But the thing that stands out to me, the Daily Planet is far from the tallest building in the city. You actually have to search for it. Interesting. And even though it's a bit dirtier, Metropolis is still not Gotham, which I'm thankful for. This is definitely a post-9-11 metropolis, riddled with fear of terrorism, and that makes me realize what Wade has done. Without saying it outright, the World Trade Center disaster did occur, but it was before there was a Superman. Logistically, Clark would have been abroad when that happened, and the fact that we see the after-effect and don't get an over-the-top scene of Clark regretting not being there or wondering what he could have done is such a relief. It really could have been a punch-you-in-the-face scenario with the imagery to match. Instead, it's 
it's set up so you take it in stride. And the idea of fear plays into the overall story. It's not heavy-handed, thankfully. And that gets echoed with Galloway berating Jimmy, pouring a trash can over the guy's head, stating that he owns Olsen. You really feel bad for him. But it's another bully, like Keebile, and Lois is the one who stands up, like Kobe did. When Lois storms into the scene and puts Galloway in his place, not only do I give it a hell yeah, I also see exactly why Clark becomes immediately enamored with her. And it's revealed that Lois has been following up on Clark's good deeds, believing in the concept of a flying do-gooder turning the world, even when her publisher admonishes her for seeking out this story. And when Clark and Lois do meet, she asks him to turn up the volume, which does show us that Clark is putting on his act without saying it literally. It's the subtleties that make a big difference here. And speaking of meetings, I totally hear Lane Smith's voice as he's telling Clark that nobody's shoes are that interesting. And of course, Clark reduces the act, becoming assertive and telling Perry exactly why he wants to work at the Daily Planet, punctuated by a comedic beat of Clark and Perry staring at each other, and then Clark blatantly knocks a cup of pencils over, which is admittedly a really forced comedy beat, but it's still got a laugh out of me. And then on page 12, we get our first shirt rip, and, well, John Williams' music plays. That's that's about it. And when Superman does appear, it's a two-page splash, and it needed to be. Especially since this occurs on pages 16 and 17 of a 22-page issue, after four issues, almost the equivalent of a five-issue, because we have the extra pages in the first two issues, we're basically five issues into a Superman story, and he's just now showing up. It needed to be what it was, and it was awesome. It's a bit of Superman the movie, it's a little Man of Steel, it's all awesome, and it's buttoned by the fact that Lois is not afraid. In fact, when she says that there's still danger, go, I fell in love with her. And let's not be crazy, she slips from her card. She's still Lois Lane after all, but she knows what needs to be done, and she cheers him on. And the remainder of the issue is a lot of great imagery, which is exactly what it needs to be, because this has been festering all this time, and now he's out, and he's being awesome. And we are left with another awkward ending, but a seed gets a bit more water as Clark notices Lex, and we are left to wonder what is Clark's connection to Lex, and what is Lex's history in Smallville. Now, of course, all of that and more explored in the next two issues, but man, can Wade write an awesome Lois Lane. Really, I've harbored a natural crush on Lois as a character, but may he, Wade makes that hit fever pitch. And plus, did I mention we got Superman? Now, on that, uh, John Byrne had Clark go from Krypton to Smallville to Superman in one issue, and it worked. The expanded story isn't a bad thing, but Wade has the luxury of being able to tell a confined, standalone story, which lets him play with a little bit of Clark in there. So there's a little bit of a Smallville influence, because we wouldn't have seen a standalone Clark Kent story before unless it's a backup, like the uh, Private Life of Clark Kent in the Bronze Age. Byrne had six issues to build a Superman, a metropolis, a villain, and bring the entire mythology to a current status with the, the ebb and flow. Wade has a bigger playing field, and overall, with the section taking place in Africa and the Smallville scenes, he's staying out of what came before as much as possible. We still get a new perspective on the story we know so well, and I appreciate that. It's not like it took us ten years to see Clark fly. Too soon? But now that Superman has gone public, what lies ahead for the Man of Steel? We're going to be looking at that in Birthright issues 5 and 6, Right after this podcast promo, I need a quick break, so I will see you in 2 and 2 with more Birthright. 
My name is Steve Lacey, and I'm a podcaster. The randomizer hit my long boxes, and now I'm lost in my comic book collection. Help me. Help me. Listen, please, is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm being controlled by an overbearing and fickle randomizer. I'm doing everything I can to review this book in the next 20 minutes. This is the 20 Minute Long Box. The 20 Minute Long Box is the briefest and most random of comic book podcasts. Every two weeks, a completely random comic book from my collection is the subject of the show. Find me at the show's site, 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com, the show's blog at 20minutelongbox.wordpress.com, or search for 20 Minute Long Box on iTunes. Prepare yourself for random. And we return to look at Superman Birthright number 6, which went on sale November 5th of 2003, with a cover date of January 2004, and picks up the pace immediately. We have a cover showing the newly costumed Clark Kent crawling out of some rubble with Lex Luthor superimposed in the background smiling, and Lois with a shocked look on her face. The text on the cover reads, Menace to Metropolis. And I don't want to lose the momentum here, so let's jump right in. As the military scrambles to get the drone copters back under their control, they realize that a man flying in a red cape just stops several of them. Speaking of the man in the red cape, he gets back to action, protecting bystanders and smashing the drones, taking their radio box. Using his superpowered visions, Clark is able to trace the remote control signal back to the source, and that source is the top of LexCorp Towers, the tallest building in Metropolis. Clark flies right into the office of Lex Luthor himself, just as Lex ends a call with somebody named Juris. Pay attention, that'll be important. Superman demands to know what Luthor's game is, but Lex points out that Superman has no evidence, since tracking the signal could only be done with Superman's powers. And as Luthor threatens Superman with legal action for breaking and entering, his security team storms in along with Lois and Jimmy. Superman disarms the guards with a bit of heat vision, and Lex goes into PR mode and pretends that Superman is a friend of Luthor, even as Superman stands motionless, looking angry. The security guards try to take Jimmy's camera, and an angry Superman flies out of the offices, taking Jimmy's camera with him. Luckily, when Jimmy and Lois are leaving, the Man of Steel drops the camera right into Jimmy's hands, leading Lois and Jimmy to file the scoop and give the flying man in a red cape a name. Superman. It's all over the front page of the Daily Planet, and Lois is enjoying her victory, but that elation is short-lived as Perry introduces her to new partner, Clark Kent. Perry wasn't going to hire Clark, but Kent snuck an expose about Otto Juris, who used the drones to malfunction. Basically, he caused them to malfunction because why? It would mean that LexCorp would be the one to get the security contract if Wayne Tech failed. But with the expose, that is now off the table. And Lois looks closely at Clark because he looks so familiar. But no matter how much she looks, she doesn't connect that Clark and Superman are the same person the disguise worked. And Clark settles into his new life as a mild-mannered reporter and Superman. Elsewhere, Luthor arrives as a secret facility, one of monitoring the skies for signs of life beyond Earth. He enters an elevator, which takes him into an underground portion of the facility, where he pulls open a secure container. Within the container is a familiar green ore, emblazoned with the S symbol that Luthor saw on his adversary. And he demands a meeting with Clark Kent, wrapping us up 
for the issue on a WTF moment. And I'm going to start with page one, because honestly I have very little to say about the cover. Beyond it does its job of enticing me to read the issue. But here on page one, with the military struggling to figure out just what happened to the drone copters, the red cape comment makes me think specifically of fly. Don't look, just fly. I don't know if that was Mark Wade's intent, but it works and it works well. And I love the sort of resigned, exasperated looks on the controllers' faces. As much as they want to, don't want to believe, or admit that a flying man in a red cape just saved the day, you know, they'll take what they can get. They're caught with their pants down, and any port in a storm will do. Then we have Clark rising up from the rubble on pages 2 and 3, and the look on his face says, I have had enough of your crap. He's not angry and lashing out, but clearly annoyed and ready to put an end to these things. And as Andrew Leyland will agree, there is nothing wrong with Superman fighting robots. I'll take that any day over fighting an island of kryptonite. And fight them he does on pages 4 and 5, smashing things to bits as surprised onlookers just ask, Who is this guy? More than the rest of the sequences, this one takes me back to Superman the movie, uh, especially starting last issue with the chopper rescue and up through these changes of uh, these pages of super feats. We've been anxiously awaiting Clark donning that suit, and Wade knows this. He knows, so he's letting us vent a little with some unbridled super action. Don't worry, there's plenty of action still to come. And the detail is what really makes it here. Um, we have this excellent use of super hearing on page six, with sounds of the city displayed in a whirl of text. The thing is. It's in various font styles, font sizes, and it creates a mass of confusion. And this idea would be recycled a bit, with a little bit of tweaking on Mark Wade's Daredevil run, with text forming shapes, as kind of how Daredevil sees the world, quote, air quotes on seas. I don't know if Wade was behind that particular concept, or if the artist had the idea, but it's solid. It's a clear display of what Clark experiences in terms of super hearing. And when Superman and Lex are kind of face-to-face -face on page 9, Luthor is spot-on. He's firing on all cylinders. He refuses to believe what he is seeing. And it's not out of shock or awe. It's more out of science. He's looking at the technology, or potential technology, that would simulate these powers. In short, Lex refuses to believe that a man can fly. And the references to Superman the movie don't end there as Clark calls Lex a diseased maniac on page 11, just wanted to point that out. And the immediate shift from cold calculating Lex to the smiling public image is both alarming and funny. Clearly, Clark is not the only one who studied some acting. Acting! Uh, Superman's complete lack of reaction is also a bit of magic too, standing motionless with a scowl on his face. And Lex actually believed he owned the Man of Steel thanks to that massive ego. Well, that backfired. And as Superman drops Jimmy's camera off and flies up by the rooftop restaurant he saved earlier, um, he gets this wave and a thank you from the lady, and I hear nothing but John Williams music there. This and the previous issue really deliver the familiar, showing that Mark Wade knows where to deviate from the known and when to lay it on thick with a pure, unabashed love of Superman shining through. This was what Superman is all about. And I'm glad that Lois gives him the name Superman as we see from the headline on page 16. It always befuddled me on how he would, how somebody like Superman would come to call themselves that. Threw me off just a little bit. And interesting, um, if you'll note, the headline is an online headline, 
at dailyplanet.met, M-E-T, M as in Mary, which it's not a valid web address. I looked it up, and if it were, I would have snatched it up, if DC hadn't already. It's another display of subtlety. Wade shows us that the modern upgrades to the Daily Planet are there, where other writers, <clears throat> Straczynski, <clears throat> Jeff Johns, went out of their way to show this is the modern version. They have a website and, and, and go very in-depth with the technology. It's a very 21st century newspaper, but that's to be expected in a 21st century retelling of the origin. We don't have to have it, you know, posted on a, a sandwich board. And the most satisfying bit is the fact that Clark Kent, not Superman, but Clark Kent manages to hit Luthor in a place where Superman couldn't. He exposes the story behind the malfunctions, effectively defeating Luthor's attempt to steal the military contract. It's not thwarting the theft of fruit pies, but I'll be darned if it doesn't elicit a small, slow clap from me, which, just to be honest with you, it's pretty awkward when you're reading the book in public. And then the moment of truth, Lois closely examining Clark Kent, and he passes her investigation. Not only is it charming, and a bit of a well-timed levity to the story, but it also gives a moment of pause, because she really could blow the alter ego right there. And the thing is... With this version having carte blanche, it could have been a really good development, or really, really bad. And then if you try to factor that in as the canon origin, which it would become, remember that the time that this book came out, which was nearly a decade ago, I'm not going to think about that time frame, but when it came out, Lois and Clark were married. She knew the secret. Which made this a bit of an odd read, because I read it well into that period. Uh, I'd actually grown accustomed to Lois fully knowing the secret, and I'm a big supporter of that. I, I actually miss that element in the New 52. Because truthfully, the marriage of Lois and Clark worked. And this reintroduction didn't dismiss the relationship, if anything it set it up, uh, with a bit more solid foresight. And finally on this issue, Lex is obsessed with alien life. However, here, he isn't played quite as maniacal as Jeff Johns would write him in Secret Origin which is a bit refreshing, honestly. I don't need an over-the-top Lex. I want the suave, in-control Luthor who knows what is out there and how to handle it. And this Lex knows what he has, and we are about to see this in our next issue, Birthright number 6, which dropped on January 7th of 2004, with a cover date of March of 04. It features a cover showing skulls in helmets and a sword in the background with the S symbol on it, as well as the centerpiece, which is the Shard of Kryptonite, with that symbol. But it's it's actually shown here as clear and crystalline. Not sure why, but the text reads rem the remains of Krypton, and the imagery is a little freaky, which I guess fits the mood of the issue. So our final issue of the episode opens at a junior high school just outside Metropolis, where two students have stormed into the school with guns. But Superman flies in and in only seconds disarms the children and rounds them up for the authorities but doesn't stick around too long because he has another bit of business. At a seedy gun store, the owner is watching the news coverage when an instant later Superman arrives and accuses him of selling the guns to the kids. The owner denies the charge but Superman picks up a gun and fires it at the man point blank. Now Superman catches the bullet inches from away from the gun owner's face and then he wraps them up in his own guns for the police to discover. And with his work done, Superman returns to the Daily Planet as Clark Kent. While Lois is basically micromanaging Perry, who considers the pros and cons of firing Lois, but when he learns, he being Perry, learns that Clark Kent has postponed a meeting with the elusive Lex Luthor, he orders Kent to get on that. 
Like, now. And, of course, Lois tags along because she can't help herself. When Clark and Lex are face-to-face, -face, Kent tries to remind Lex that they haven't met before in Smallville, which Lex denies, and Lois finds interesting. Lex shows Lois and Clark a virtual reality simulation of other worlds, all of which inspire his technology. And he uses this to prove that we what we know, but Lois and the rest of the world doesn't. Superman is an alien, and Lex has proof. Although Lex's desire to perform an autopsy on Superman unnerves Lois to the point of leaving the LexCorp building, it still lays seeds of doubt. Clark asks her if it would matter if Superman was an alien, and she says that she just isn't sure. In turn, Lois asks about young Lex in Smallville and his obsession with life on other planets, and Clark chalks it up to, really, Lex wanting somebody to talk to. Back at the Daily Planet, Clark protests publishing Lex's claims, but Perry insists because Luthor is news, and Luthor is the closest thing to an expert on the matter of aliens. So with a heavy heart, Clark writes the story knowing that it will change the public's perceptions of him as Superman. And the issue closes with Superman stopping a bullet train and asking for help from the crowd for the driver who has suffered a heart attack. You know, the final images of the crowd recoiling in uncomfortable fear at Superman's outstretched hand, which brings us to the halfway point of our series and a major turning point for Clark's experiences as Superman. And let me jump right into the notes. With the very poignant and timely opening scene, Mark Wade isn't afraid to tackle third rail topics like school shootings, nor should he. Uh, we're living in a world, if we were living in a world, I should say, with a Superman, scenes like this one or the Boston bombing would play out differently. We know this. It's a catharsis. It's something that every Superman fan thinks of when they watch horrible things on the news. How many times have we thought to ourselves how nice it would be to have a Superman? I want to kind of... I just want to be clear on something. I'm going to be completely honest with you. They're out there. Superman is out there. He may not be in red cape. He may not be flying. But there are super people in this world. And they are those that are running to help the victims. They are teachers hiding their students at the risk and cost of their own lives. And I'm going to echo Pat Oswalt's really, really poignant response to evil. The good outnumber you, and we always will. As great as it would be to have a superhero to solve these problems in seconds and deliver the bad guys wrapped in steel, our world, in all reality, it's the Clark Kent's and Lois Lane's that make the difference. That means you and I, folks. Superman was there in Boston. He was there on September 11th. He was there in Aurora, Colorado. He was just a bit harder to recognize in that EMT or fireman uniform. And instead of a shield with the letter S, it was a police badge that saved the day every day. Never, never, never forget. All of us, you, me, everybody, those who choose and desire to do good, we're all Superman and Superwomen. We have at least one talent or some sort of skill, all of us, that can make a difference. Even if it's a kind word or a hug, if you ever take anything I say on this or any other podcast, if you ever take anything I say away from any, any of this, take this, that you hold the power. Please take that, please. And I'm going to get back to my notes here. I just wanted to take a moment and acknowledge. Um, so I'm going to move to page five. Um, there's an opinion poll on the Daily Planet website allowing readers to vote if Superman is a hero or a vigilante. From a purely 
purely technical standpoint. Specifically to this story, Superman has no jurisdiction. And he is not deputized. Now granted, he isn't bringing terror to the underworld Batman style. But he is operating outside the law. Now however, there is no rule book for a man who bats off bullets like a bead of sweat and walks through fire. But Wade poses the question and the reader can pass by it. They can leave it there, that's fine. Or they can realize that it's actually being posed to the reader of the comic, not just the reader of the Daily Planet. While well, you and I know that we can completely trust Superman, the world doesn't yet. And and yet, he, he may, they, it may be right for them not to trust him. Now, his honor will be called into question by Luthor and later on a much broader scale, but if you didn't linger on that question as I did, okay. I'm going to share a moment that the world shouldn't trust Superman in these early times. Uh, he's new, he's unrefined, he's something completely different, and no pun intended, alien. And there should be a moment of hesitation. Now, over time, he's going to earn that. Certainly. But now, appearing on the scene, flying around, where's he been? It's just, there's a lot going on in there. And I know... <laughs> I know it's one of those frustrating questions, but let me come back to that in a moment. Uh, if you didn't linger on that question, the next page has Lois micromanaging Perry in a great comedic bit. Not forced at all. It's actually excellent. And he goes through this list of pros and cons. The best bit is that Perry's office is still in repair from last issue. I like that bit of continuity. And the, his biggest con to firing Lois is that there's no good place to hide the body. Any Perry White rendition that makes me hear Lane Smith's voice is made of win. And then we get Luthor, who I really, really like in red and black, by the way. And he is dripping with smug self-righteousness and snideness. It's pure Clancy Brown, and his, his voice is the only one that I hear in Lex. So, very well done. But what is with Lex and Smallville? What occurred to change the introverted young man we see into this horrible person? We'll see that a little bit down the road, but the little details get me like LexSoft, the computer software, and the way that this Luthor develops his cutting-edge technology by drawing inspirations from other planets. It's very awe-inspiring. Now, this same out-of-the-box thinking would be used by Bruce Banner in Wade's own Indestructible Hulk, where he gets to play with this idea a little bit further, and it ends up blowing Tony Stark's ego out of the water. Very great scene. If you're not reading Indestructible Hulk, I'd highly recommend it. And on top of the cover, the simulation of a Superman autopsy left me a bit uncomfortable. Um, which I guess is the point, but I don't go to Superman stories to be made uncomfortable. Uh, there are plenty of other sources of, of discomfort in this world. So rather the opposite, I go for comfort, I go for inspiration. And here is where we get the deranged bit with Luthor that shows his more maniacal side. We know it's there, but it isn't for public consumption. And I... I do appreciate that Lex has that darker side, maybe a bit of a craziness, but I still hold to the fact that we don't need it. Because Lex Luthor is not Dr. Savannah coming up with comical crazy schemes, he's evil, in his purest form, completely willing and able to do anything to win. He's cold, calculating, until his bottom line is affected or somebody comes between him and the city, and even then, he's going to execute you, and then go back to watching History Channel while his workers clean up your body. Now, at least this is that is what I like about Lex. And Wade makes Lex almost sympathetic to a point. Because we see that lonely childhood in Smallville. 
I don't really want or need to sympathize with Lex, nor do I want a crackling madman. However, I am intrigued to see the evolution of this character from child to the devil. And then Clark has to write the revelation of his alien heritage, knowing, full well knowing, what it will lead the public to do, which is distrust him. It's like writing your own obituary, and then we see these results. And yes, it's an abrupt ending, but it's also a spot where we have a thinking point. So coming back to my thought process a little bit earlier, I do want to put this in a little bit more context. Um, because I think that's important to the story. Every subsequent rendition of Superman's origin since has had that huge piece of don't trust Superman. Now, I mentioned at the beginning, okay, distrust, uh, skeptical, remain skeptical. This is this story took place way before that fad, and realistically, it may have technically started it. I don't like the world as a whole not trusting him ever. You know, that's Spider-Man the X-Men territory. But, a being that can fly, shoot rays from his eyes, crush steel in his hands, arrives on the scene out of nowhere, it's not unrealistic to have the world not accept him completely. Or, to have them accept him completely. Sorry, but it's true. If you, you know, it would be weird to see the world be like, oh, man, they can fly. We have to trust him completely. Superman should be a source of conflict in opinion if you're trying to create a grounded real-world direction. The difference is, eventually Superman should gain a large degree of acceptance over time with his actions showing his character. And here in this time frame and with Lex stirring the pot, it's a good solid conflict that Superman can, he just can't hit it with his fists. It informs the second half of the tale and really opens up what is to come and what is coming is big, literally. But that gets us to the halfway point. And so far we have seen Clark grow from an infant to an estranged and lonely young man hiding in the world. Kobe and Abina inspired his never-ending battle and showed him how he can better use his talents and abilities. We've seen Mon Pa Kent help create an alter ego and saw the relationship between Jonathan and Clark mended. Superman himself has arrived, as well as the mild-mannered reporter setting us up to the familiar status quo. But Luthor is about to pull the rug out from under all of that and do something that will change how everyone views this strange visitor from another planet. That begins next time. For now, let's put Birthright away and jump into an episode of Superman the Animated Series where Superman will do battle with a familiar face and one who has managed to find a weakness more potent than Kryptonite. This week's episode of Superman the Animated Series is entitled Solar Power, which aired on September 26, 1997. The episode was written by Robert Goodman and directed by Kazuhide Tomonaga. Joining our regular cast again is Robert Hayes as Edward Leitner, who we saw trying to kill Lois in the episode Target. Remember that one? And we open the episode with a helicopter landing at Stryker's Island near the yard where inmates are keeping themselves busy. Edward Leitner begins walking toward the landing pad, very calmly, and when a guard stops him, he vanishes after flipping a switch. Leitner reappears long enough to cold cock the guard and slip into the helicopter, stealing it and making his escape. At the Daily Planet, a storm is raging. 
Clark Kent drops his pen under the mammoth desk, and when nobody is looking, he lifts it up with his super strength, but he struggles with the weight. Clark gets a call from Lois, who is on a tram, en route to get more information about Lightner's escape. Her car suddenly comes to a dead stop, and she realizes that Lightner has her trapped, as a laser is cutting the arm of the car where it dangles well above the bay below. Lightner says that Lois is simply bait, and when Superman arrives, he is the real target, and he grabs the car as it plummets, but the tram is too heavy. Lightner appears to warn Superman, saying that he is luminous now, and after he leaves, Superman saves Lois as the car drops into the river. Puzzled, Superman goes to the edge of Metropolis to test his powers and finds that everything is weakened. He can barely lift a boulder or melt it with his heat vision. And then the clouds part and they reveal the sunlight, which is now red, which is sapping away his powers, and we fade to a commercial break. Okay, to, ser- to share some notes with you on this first segment... I don't remember noting that Edward Leitner really reminds me a lot of Snapper Carr, the Justice League's mascot from back in the day. It's not that relevant, but there it is. And his hologram trip to escape prison reminds me a lot of Superman 2 without the checkerboard. And why would Luthor play any game with an oaf like Otis? Otis? I mean, speaking of oafs, let's, let's stay on that topic. Why would trained guards fire on a helicopter? It's dangerous because the ricochets could go, it could cause a great deal of destruction, and that would be destruction of government property. Just saying, most trained guards wouldn't open fire on a helicopter. And Clark grunting as he lifted the desk, it brought to mind a conversation in Clark's when Dante is trying to lift the gallon of milk. All that was missing was like Jimmy giving him the suggestion to join a gym. And another dingbat move was Lois using public transportation and one suspended far above the ground or the water. So Lightner's on the loose, tried to kill her before. Did she forget that when he was trying to kill her, he almost succeeded by using her own vehicle? Hmm. And this episode is a really good example of the show's internal continuity, as it picks up on the plot thread and target and follows through, giving us a more supervillainous Edward Lightner. Or should I say luminous? And I wonder if Jamie Madrox knows that Lightner stole his costume. It's not a bad thing, and it looks good, even in line with the fourth world stuff to some extent. It definitely fits the theme of the show, it definitely fits the look. And as Superman rescues Lois and lets the tram car fall in the river, I just wonder how safe is the Metropolis drinking water, because we've seen him throw a lot of stuff in that river. Um, One thing I really want to mention is that the character models seem to be more on point in this episode. Superman maintains his size ratio, and there there have been just so many episodes where Superman's weight seems to fluctuate. Uh, but beyond saying the last shot of Superman looking at Metropolis is bathed in red sunlight is looking very gorgeous, that's kind of all I have on the first part, so let's look what happens on the other side of the commercial break. And we pick up with a pair of newscasters explaining that a group of satellites is filtering the sunlight so that only the red rays come through. So, glad we got that exposition. Lois is on the phone with Lex Luthor because he's the only one capable of such technology, but Lex denies it as he practices his archery. Later, as Clark, Lois, and Jimmy are researching Luthor's satellite technology, Clark notices a Superman symbol being shined into the sky or shown. Ah, grammar sucks. He goes to check it out and finds Lightner waiting for him. Lightner uses holographic duplicates to confuse Superman and attacks with a laser gun. Using the water stream from a nearby pipe, Superman is able to single out the real Lightner, who escapes, 
warning that the test is over and next time Superman dies. Clark goes back to his apartment and nurses his wounds which include a bloody lip. Meanwhile Lois and Jimmy go to investigate Alexcorp's satellite location but they only find a vacant field at the address. Then Lois notices a bird perched on the air and clues in that there is an invisible building. wonder if there's an invisible jet. That's probably hoping too much. But the duo are able to enter the facility, and then Lightner traps them in a laser cage. Laser. At Star Lab, Superman is working with Professor Hamilton to get his old rocket into space and knock out some of the satellites. But a hologram of Lightner appears and reveals that he has Lois and Jimmy hostage, which baits the Man of Steel into following a ball of light to the invisible facility, which, well, becomes visible. Struggling to fly, Superman reaches the satellite installation where he finds an old saloon inside, where Lightner uses laser fields to make holograms fully capable of hurting the weakened Superman. A hologram of Lightner as a cowboy throws Superman through the saloon's doors and onto some train tracks, where the beaten and weak Man of Steel struggles to get up as a train barrels towards him, and we fade to commercial and a few more notes. I really dig that as Lex is using a bow and arrow, he is actually wearing a wrist guard, which is... I know it's trivial, but it's a good attention to detail. There's thought going into this animation. And I do believe Lex when he says, I'm not going to jeopardize the whole planet to get back at Superman. This version of Lex has too much to lose in the way of profits. He's not going to make like a kryptonite island in the middle of the world that will wipe out most of his customers, because that would be illogical. Too soon? Again, on the attention to detail front, when Superman flies through the beam of the Superman signal, his costume's colors react by growing a little bit brighter within the beam and then going back to their regular tones outside the beam. See, it could have not been in there and I wouldn't have caught it. Nobody would have thought about it, but once again, thought and love and care is going into this show. However, <laughs> the fight with Luminous was lacking. It smacked of the fortress battle at the end of the Richard Lester cut of Superman 2, omitting the cellophane S. And we have another villain weakening Superman and then using an energy weapon on him. We literally just saw this last week. We even saw him use the water main to flesh out and stave off the enemy. It's just too repetitive. And the Superman 2 flashbacks continue when we get to Clark's apartment. A. How does everyone have a swanky apartment in Metropolis? And B. Clark is bleeding. So I automatically hear Chris Reeve musing on how he's never bled before. However, Lois saying the line, look in the sky, it's a bird, brought me a smile. Lightner's follow the ball of light was classic villainy. And then Lightner explains that he's using laser fields to make the holograms pack a punch. I'm going to lay this on you. Think this through. I'm going to go a little Star Trek TNG on you. That's next generation for those un uninitiated. Luminous is a light-based villain. And... Couldn't he have said, I'm using hard light holograms or something like that, or is that too much of a stretch? Because the laser fields, I didn't buy. Hard light hologram, at least, you know, I know it's pseudoscience, but it, it convinces me. Either way, we left Superman in a heck of a predicament at the commercial break, so let's look at the last section of the episode. Superman is able to duck out of the train's way and finds himself on a pirate ship, where Lightner tries to attack with a laser pirate sword. What's with the lasers? But when Lightner backs Superman up against a literal wall, the Man of Steel is able to disarm Lightner and uses the sword to cut a hole through the hologram and escape into the facility. 
Superman makes his way to a control room for the satellites where Jimmy and Lois are hanging from one of the satellite dishes. Lightner attacks Superman with his laser weapon, but the Man of Steel is able to deflect the beam with a spare dish, which destroys Lightner's machine. And though Eddie tries beating on Superman, his po Superman's powers return, and the punches have less and less effect as yellow sunlight floods in. With regained power, Superman is able to overpower Lightner and put him into the custody of the SCU, and the day is saved. Lightner is headed back to prison, Lois and Jimmy are safe, so Superman flies up into the blue sky and the yellow sun, wrapping up the episode. And to wrap up my thoughts on the episode, Superman is momentarily not more powerful than a locomotive. I see what they did there. There were a few good strobe effects when moving between Lightner's holograms, and Lightner momentarily becomes a fun villain, because he's a cowboy, he's a pirate, he's a big kid with great toys, but it still comes back to that repetitiveness. This is the same template as last episode, and I wish we would stop getting a weakened Superman. At least when you look at episodes like The Main Man, where Lobo shows up, that's a solid fight. And here we get Lightner wailing away like Superman Returns, except, I mean... Silver lining, Kumar isn't in on the action. But like Superman Returns, there was no real climax to this episode. It built up, but a weak villain wasn't much to contend with, and in the end I found it forgettable save for, you know, some solid animation. However, next week's episode is Brave New Metropolis, and that has me very excited as well as continuing the birthright coverage as Krypton invades. Um, one thing I want to mention real quick before I do go is that Tom Caters of Tom vs. the Flash fame has a new, um, what I assume to be, temporary podcast um, as he's waiting to get another job in copywriting or in, ah, uh, yeah, <laughs> in portfolio. Um, but basically, he is doing a show called My Week with Jimmy Olsen, which as of the time of this recording, I believe is up to four episodes and is slated to go to eight. Tom Caters is an excellent podcaster. Most of us podcasters owe our format to Tom Caters. And I would direct you to TomCaters.com. That's T-O-M-K-A-T-E-R-S.com. Look for My Week with Jimmy Olsen. Give that a listen. It's really, really entertaining. Um, but I will be back next week. So be done listening by then. And until then, I am J. David Weider saying, keep on fighting the never-ending battle. Superman Forever Radio is a Nat World production. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, where you can leave a review. The show's episodes and extended show notes are available at supermanforever.com, where episodes premiere every Sunday. Episode postings can also be found at the supermanhomepage.com and at supermanpodcastnetwork.com, where you can find a wide variety of quality Superman podcasts for your listening pleasure. And episodes are also available on Stitcher Radio. Email is always welcome. The address is mail at supermanforever.com. You can friend and follow the show at facebook.com slash supermanforeverradio. And David is also on Twitter with the handle at superdaveweeder. Weeder is spelled W-E-T-E-R. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties of DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman and all related characters are copyrighted properties of DC Comics and Warner Brothers Entertainment. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and copyrights remain with the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. As always, thank you so much for listening.